I'm glad that you're here. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for the nation in which we live. Father, as broken as it seems to us sometimes and as harsh the tone and some of our public discourse, I pray that your presence would be amongst us to be peacemakers and turning the hearts of our leaders toward you. Father, I pray that we might be agents of your love and your healing in this nation and in the world. Lord, we're grateful for the freedoms that we have, that we can open the word, we can study your word, and we can live it out without fear of persecution. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've, as we get further and further into the book of Romans, the reviews can get longer and longer. So I'm going to keep it short. We have been through Romans chapters 1 through 8, and we are going to, in the next two lessons, do chapters 9 through 11, because they make a coherent uh, argument together, chapters 9, 10, and 11. There are two big topics in those three chapters I want to talk about. One is the idea of the sovereignty of God, which gets into the idea of predestination, and we'll talk about that in this lesson. The other is that basically what happens to the Jewish people with the arrival of the gospel, even particularly forecasting in the end times. So I want to talk about the Jewish people and how they relate to the gospel, and we'll do that in the next lesson. But this is chapters 9, 10, and 11. What I really hope you get out of this, I actually hope you get a lot of things because this is a brilliant revelation from God about what is the good news of Jesus. And we started out by saying the good news, which is what the word gospel means, is really referring to an historical event with God become man dies on a cross to bear our sins, raised from the dead, and it is the good news of that historical event and what that means. My phrase, it, it was a world-altering, life-changing event. And so when we encounter the good news, it will alter our lives. So chapters one through eight, I chose to uh, explain it this way. This is a map of the ancient Middle East, think 1400 BC, 1400 years before Christ. So this is the Exodus story, the book of Exodus in your Old Testament. And so it's going to parallel the gospel and chapters one through eight really line out the gospel. And so let me use this to illustrate it. In 1400 BC, in this area of Israel, I'm circling the land of Goshen, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. This is also an historical event that's recounted, but it has a spiritual template. The Exodus motif, the Exodus story is a template that God is going to use in a big way. Think of the Exodus of the Jews, as unbelievable as it was, as a dress rehearsal for what God's going to do on a cosmic scale in the gospel. So let me make the parallels as we go through it. So you have Israelites, slaves in Egypt. Romans chapters 1 through 3 talk about how we all are slaves to sin. Every one of us has sinned, and every one of us rightfully stands under the wrath, the condemnation of God. In other words, we are slaves to sin. We are not near God. The Israelites were slaves in uh, Goshen, in, in Egypt, and they were not near the promised land. This is the land of Israel. I'm circling that. That's where they're supposed to be, but that's not where they are. 
They are not where God designed them to be, just as we are serving sin and we are not in the, quote, Garden of Eden. We are not near God. So Romans 1 through 3 talks about our condition. Romans 4, 5, and 6 basically talk about what God did about that. Well, what did he do with the Israelites? He basically came to rescue them. In that case, he sent a man, Moses. Moses didn't rescue them. It's not like he was a great general and he said, I figured out a plan. You know, this is not like a, you know, a surreptitious type thing. He just went to Pharaoh and said, my God told me to come tell you, let these people go. Pharaoh said, I'm not letting them go. What are you going to do? And Moses goes, I'll be right back. And he goes and talks to God. And so God actually delivers them through that series of plagues, right? What delivered us from our bondage to sin? Well, Romans 4, 5, and 6 said, God reached down to us because he loved us to pull us out of sin. He's doing the same thing with us as he did with the Israelites. Did it to them physically, he's doing it to the whole of us spiritually. So this is Romans, just writing down here Romans 1 through 6, is basically the gospel, the good news of what God's going to do on this cosmic spiritual sense, and he gave a little dress rehearsal with the Jews in the Exodus. Well, then the Jews leave. They go into this desert, and they wander around in the desert. They're not lost. They're just wandering around in this desert for 40 years because you can get the Israelites out of Egypt we need to take Egypt out of the Israelites. In other words, they need to learn to trust God. And if you go back and read the book of Exodus, what are they doing in that desert? They don't have enough food. They don't have any food. They don't have any water. They don't have any protection. They don't have, there are no 7-Elevens on this route. And so basically, God gives them enough food every day, just enough for the day. And they learn to trust God in this journey to the promised land. Well, What's happening in our spiritual life? We come to follow Christ. We believe, we trust. It's a better word in English. We trust in this event of the gospel and what it means. That Jesus Christ bore my sins. I have turned my life over to him. As Paul says, when we were baptized into Christ, it's like our old self died and we are reborn to be new creations. And we are following Christ. Where are we going? We're going through the life, right? We're going through this desert of the life. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. As we go through that, how are we going to do this? It's not easy. We need God, and God is training us to rely on him. And that's what Romans chapter 7 and 8 are about, is how do we walk this out? So Romans 7 through 8 is talking about depending on the Spirit, not depending on my own efforts, following Christ, and so you kind of see the parallels here between the gospel and the exodus. That's my review. So now in 9 through 11, 12 through 16, by the way, are going to be some really practical how to live this kind of thing out. You're going to like that section. But 9 through 11 is going to go in a little bit different direction. But before we get to that, let me just tell you how we closed out chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts to introduce an interesting idea because as we walk through this life, is this just random? Like, God, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're waiting at the finish line. Like when I die, you'll say, hey, finally you died. You're here in heaven. This is awesome. And I'm on my own right now. And that's not the case, is it? You begin to see in chapter eight, God says, as you walk this road, I want you to know this. 
We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I'm just going to stop there because the point I want to make is you start to get this idea that, oh, God isn't just in charge of heaven. God's actually in charge of this universe. He's actually in charge of this world that I'm walking through, that I'm living through. He's actually in charge here and now. You begin to see this idea. Then listen to the next passage. This is how chapter 8 finishes. Beautiful. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? We're now talking about this Christian life that we are living here. God is present and active now, not just in heaven, just like he was with the Israelites. He's giving them their bread every day. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much will he not also graciously give us all things? And so in verse 37, he says, uh, who shall, or 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, is Christ far off waiting for me at the finish line? No. He said he's as close as the spirit that lives within us. Who could separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, illness, a bankruptcy, a boss that's a jerk. I mean, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither life or death, angels or demons, present or future, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So you begin to see the idea of as you walk through this life, you're not just cut loose on your own. God is still sovereign. What sovereignty means is God is in charge. I mean, sovereign means like a king. In other words, you rule this. And so God is the power in this universe. And so God is sovereign, and I want to talk to you about God's sovereignty. Chapters 9 through 11, that's a big deal, is the fact that even in this world and in this life, God is our king. God is our sovereign. God is the one who is in charge of everything that's happened. He, can, he has the power in this universe. One last idea. Uh, we also talked about this, this idea of two roads. I just want you to keep this in your mind. Is Romans chapter 1 through 8 sets up this idea that there is a way of living that leads to death. And that is being a slave to sin. It is being self-centered, self-absorbed, pursuing my own way. Call it whatever you want because that's sin. And then there is a path, a road that is righteousness, meaning being right with God. Because Jesus bore my sins, I'm judicially right with God. I'm also relationally close and right with God. And in fact, he has placed his spirit in me to guide me, encourage me, and build me on this road. So I want you to think about this. Now, we're talking about the road that leads to righteousness and us living that. But here's an interesting question. So why then did all the Jews who were waiting for the Messiah, who were waiting for this, why didn't they all trust in Christ? We will talk about that in our next lesson. But another question is this, why doesn't everybody today trust in Christ faced with this decision? And it brings up the issue of the sovereignty of God and the free will or the will of humanity. That's what chapter nine wants to talk about, is this interplay between our will and the sovereignty of God. So let's jump in 
And we'll start, I'm not gonna do all of chapter nine, but I wanna get enough for us to really frame up this idea of God's sovereignty in the world and our choices, our will. Romans 9, 6 through 18. It is not as though God's word had failed. In other words, the fact that people don't become Christian is not because God's word has failed. It's not sufficient or it's not good enough. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Talk about that in our next lesson. Nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but the children of promise who were regarded as Abraham's offspring. That's good news for you and me. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not just the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews, that the gospel is for. He said, actually, that promise to Abraham that I'll bless all of the nations of the world through you, that's now coming true for you and me who are not Jewish. He says, it's not just the people that are born of Abraham, it's the people who have the faith of Abraham. Not only that, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, Isaac, yet before the twins were born or anything had done good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So I gotta highlight a couple of words here, hang on. So this idea of election or choosing, not by works, but by God, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. If you don't know much about the Bible stories, don't worry about that, I didn't either. Uh, I became a Christian later in life and just read them and learned them. Abraham, who is the first Jew, God chose him to work through his people about 2000 BC. And he had the son Ishmael and leads to the tribes of Arabia, which 2,600 years later leads to Muhammad, which 4,000 years later leads to Iran, Iraq, and a whole mess in the Middle East. Another story for another day. But he also has his son, Isaac. God said, I told you I'd make you a great nation. It's going to be through Isaac. Isaac gets married to Rebekah. Rebekah has twins. She has a boy named Jacob, a boy named Esau. And so God is saying, I am orchestrating the promises that I made to you, and I am the one who is choosing. And he said, before they were born, uh, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. He said, before they were born, God knew who was going to carry out this promise. And so in verse 14, it says, well, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Well, now we know that's true from the gospel. The good news of Christ isn't you and I have to do something to earn God's approval. Uh, it doesn't say you and I would just happen to be better people, and that's why we are going to be trusting in Christ. God did it. It's all grace, meaning God showered his love and his mercy on us, not through anything that we did to deserve it. That's true. The scripture says to Pharaoh, this is back to our Exodus story, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is a difficult and interesting passage. What is this basically saying? It says, if you look at the history of Abraham and God's promises to him, you may remember the story of the Exodus where Yul Brynner, the Pharaoh, says, I will not let you go. And God says, oh yeah, here's a plague. Here's a judgment on the gods of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He goes, I know it's terrible, but I still, my pride will not let you go. And so God is saying, in some sense, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he's also saying, and by the way, I chose Jacob, not Esau. And in fact, Esau is going to go off and have a little nation of his own, and they're going to become enemies over time. You get this idea that God is orchestrating what's happening. God is choosing, or the biblical word is electing, election, as to who and what is happening. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in the 20th century, kind of put it this way. It raises the issue of who's calling the shots in your and my life, who's calling the shots of what is happening here. And it gets into a dispute when it comes to salvation. Is God choosing who gets saved and thereby who doesn't, or am I? choosing whether or not to respond to God's offer of salvation. And therein lies the interesting little mix. I'm thinking you're thinking of questions right now. You text them in. We'll go wherever your brains go on this. But this idea of God being sovereign brings up some interesting questions. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, and this is a really cut up piece, but basically what he's saying is this, why does man act as he does? There are three ultimate explanations. The first one is contingency, meaning there's no rhyme or reason. You are a free moral agent, and you just do what you want, right? Anybody who's dealt with certain government agencies will maybe believe that. You just do what you want. Who knows who's in charge of this thing, right? Okay, that was a bad joke. You guys work at government agencies, don't you? <laughs> but the idea is you're a free moral agent, and you just do what you want, right? No rhyme, no reason to it. That's one theory of how you're living in the world. It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? I can do anything I want. I mean, I might have a Coke, I may not. I might have a hamburger, I might have chicken nuggets. You know, I don't know which Happy Meal I'm getting today. In other words, I'll just choose. And you feel like just a, what's called a free moral agent. You can choose to do whatever you want to do. So that's one option. The other is called determinism. This is very popular today because our, our scientific model is built a little bit on determinism. Basically, you can't help it. It's just the way you are. Everything is determined and you are not free. You are either biologically determined, in other words, everything's all about hormones and whatever, and that's essentially why you do what you do, or psychological. Psychoanalysis, Freudians uh, say psychoanalysis has undermined our confidence in the reality of free will by showing how often apparently deliberate actions are in fact determined by motives of which we're unaware. So basically, here are two ways people think about you and my choosing what we do in life. One is we're free to choose whatever we want to do. That's called contingency. The other is determinism. You think you are. You're actually just a puppet being pulled by the strings of your glands or your... Psych, your, your uh, psyche, right? Your mind. It's sort of predetermined. If I knew enough about you, I could tell everything that you were going to do. You're sort of a little biological robot, right? We don't like that, but that's kind of where Darwinism takes you, by the way. In my view, Darwinism has a hard time escaping determinism. But whatever, those are the kind of points of view. The third point of view is a biblical view, and it says this. The Apostle Paul is saying, the biblical doctrine of certainty that we make responsible choices but under the sovereignty of God. 
Now think about that for a minute. What the Bible is saying is it's rejecting both of those. You are not a free moral agent. You can do whatever you want. For one thing, you can't save yourself. That required God. On the other hand, you are responsible. See, the problem with determinism is I'm not actually responsible for what I did. It's just the way I was made. I, I was just, this is the way I was born. This is what my DNA led me to do. This is what my circumstances led me to do. In other words, I'm not responsible because I'm programmed in one way or another. Bible doesn't believe that either. Bible says you are making responsible choices, meaning you are responsible for the choices that you make. If you take out your gun and shoot somebody, you can't just say, I guess I was just programmed to do that. No, it's I'm responsible. And yet at the same time, God is sovereign. Otherwise, I could never be saved. That makes sense? Let me give you a couple of examples. Tim Keller has a couple of good examples of this. Uh, but first, let me go to another idea. One of you will say then, in uh, 9, 19 through 25, why does God still blame me? In other words, if he's sovereign, well, how could I be responsible for anything? Paul's answer is different than you would think. He says, who are you? If God's really orchestrating what's happening in the world, then maybe I'm not responsible for what I do. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common purposes? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with patience the objects of wrath, prepared for destruction? This is typically understood as a strong sovereignty of God that some people were basically chosen, elected to say, I'm going to make you into someone who is saved. And others, I'm not going to make you into someone who is saved. So we're going to explore this a little bit. In other words, it's a strong view of God's sovereignty. I will call them my people who are not my people, my loved one who is not my loved one. In Jeremiah, you see the same imagery. By the way, you see this imagery all over the place in the Old Testament. He says this, this is the word that came to Jeremiah. Go down to the potter's house and I'm going to give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. And the word of the Lord came to me, O Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? In other words, you are like clay in the hand of the potter. If I announce that a nation is going to be uprooted and torn down and repents, then I will relent. If another time I announce that it's to be built up and it doesn't obey me, then I might destroy it. Therefore, say to the people of Judah, this is what the Lord says. By the way, anybody ever had a coffee cup with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I'm going to read Jeremiah 18, 11. Jeremiah 18, 11 says this, look, I am preparing a disaster for you, devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Mardell's isn't carrying that cup yet, but I have recommended it. I want my Jeremiah 18.11 cup, right? It says that. In other words, you get this idea that, uh, well, let me say how A.T. Robertson, the potter takes the clay as he finds it, but uses it as he wishes. And that analogy comes to us. In other words, God is the potter, we are the clay. And the sense of sovereignty is being compared to a potter who chooses what he will do with the clay. So let me stop, take a couple of questions here. So this is what Romans 9, this is talking about the sovereignty of God. God is in charge and God is the one 
who is orchestrating these events. And sometimes that's a little hard to take for us. It's like, wait a minute, then where does my free will come into this? And that's what we're exploring. Question? I have several. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses the status of Israel and the Gentiles specifically, uh, examples given. Mm -hmm. Do you think that plays a part in how to interpret these passages on election? It seems he is speaking to Jews about God's decision for the gospel to go to the Gentiles rather than just addressing individual free will and election, etc. That's a good question. I won't repeat it because it's long, but it's a well-framed question. Uh, two thoughts there. Number one, there is no, yes, he is indeed speaking about Israel, but he's pulling in the idea. There are two key ideas here. One is about Israel and whether or not the gospel failed or the Jews failed, or why does this not appear that here's the gospel, why don't all the Jews believe that? What went wrong? But it really pulls in strongly the idea of sovereignty. It's not just about the Jews. It's all about God's sovereignty. I mean, this idea of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart for my purposes, it's really got a lot of sovereignty in it. Second part of that question, very astute. Let me make this brief, but very well said. There, You can understand, this is a big kind of a theological debate. Nine through 11 can be understood as election on a national or global scale and not on an individual scale. So is this salvific? And what you're asking, and it's well said, is nine through 11 actually talking about our salvation or is it only talk about God's sovereign elective purpose in history, moving through history? Both of those are valid points of view. I'm going to address the question I'm going to actually sidestep that for a moment, and I'm going to say, if it is talking about salvation, because everybody thinks that it is, what would be the resolution of it? That's really quite a good question. Okay, this one's a fairly popular question. Why did God hate Esau before he was even born? Yeah, hate's a strong word, isn't it? Why did God hate Esau even before he was born? Well, he was really hairy. I mean, I know two things about Esau. His name means red. So his skin was really reddish colored and he was a very hairy guy. His other name means hairy, not H-A-R-R-Y, okay? Not like the shave club, hairy. So actually, I don't know if that's why. The point of the passage, don't get so much hung up on, why do you not like Esau? What did he ever do to you? Don't get hung up as much on that. The point of the passage is talking about God's sovereignty and that is, it works both ways. In fact, you like it one way, you don't like it the other way. Here's the part you like. The part is that you really like about this is God chose you, right, to trust in Christ with no regard for what you had done or whether or not you deserved it. And I'm like, I'm fine with that. He also chose that Jacob was going to be the one to move on and not uh, carry on his plans, not Esau. Well, I don't know if I like that. But the point is, God is sovereign. He's choosing. Here's where we get caught up. What we're into in 9, uh, 19 through 25 is the idea of fairness. Let me go ahead. This is kind of a hot button of mine, but I'm going to keep it really short. Let me just go ahead and answer this question. Is God fair? No. And thank God he is not. Let that sink in a little bit. God is not Fair. And what I mean by that is whatever your idea of fairness is, 
That's not what God is. Nowhere in this scripture, anywhere does God say, I'll be fair to you. No, he doesn't. If he were gonna be fair to us, what does Romans say? What did Romans one through three say? For the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. You know who that is? That's us. And so if God were being fair, we would all be destroyed. We would all be condemned. That's what, that is the gospel. And the good news is we're not because of what God did. He loved us so much he sent his son to bear our sins, right? So it's like, I'm okay with that. I don't really need a fair God on that side, but I'm gonna have trouble with fairness on the other side. So when you get into that, I just want you to remember, God is not fair and that's a good thing. Question. If God is love, how can he choose for people to go to hell? If God is love, let's just get into the deep end here. If God is love, how can he choose for people to go to hell? Okay, this is actually, I may defer this a little bit because as we go along, I wanna frame this question a little bit. Hold that thought, I'm not gonna duck it. I really am gonna answer it. Nobody theologically is going to technically say God chose people to go to hell, but I'm not dodging your question. We'll talk about that. Does God harden the hearts of Christians? Does God harden the hearts of Christians? Uh, that's a good question. Probably take us a little off course, but the, the New Testament does talk about God hardening people's hearts. I do not at this moment, just standing here off the top of my head, recall, and I may be mistaken, God, the, the New Testament talking about hardening the hearts of Christ followers, people who are following Christ. The New Testament does talk about God hardening hearts. That's a different subject for another time. Let me give you an example. Uh, Keller gives a couple of good examples. So let's think about God, and we're gonna keep this in the range of salvation with the proviso that this might be, there are other problems if you take this as this isn't about salvation, it's all about the Jews. There are other problems with that, but it's very well a good point. But let's talk about salvation. If God is electing or God is choosing, here's, here's a great way to think about it. It is one thing for a doctor to see five patients and only choose to treat two. That would be unjust. And say it would be unfair, because maybe three of them don't have insurance. But it's unjust, right? It's unjust, better word. Because as a doctor, he owes care to all these people, and all of these people have a right to be treated. But if a judge condemns a number of criminals and pardons some others, it is merciful because he doesn't owe anything to any of them. Do you see the difference? That's a really good example. That really is the idea of God. We are like criminals, according to the gospel, meaning that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, 23. In other words, none of us deserve to be saved. We have this problem called sin, a terminal disease, and only Jesus Christ can cure it. So we're more like the criminals. And so actually, the fact that God, the, the amazing thing is that anyone can be saved. Now, I'm not trying to convince you of something. I just want to make this point so you start to frame your thinking around this. So the point is that as a, we stand before God and we say, I have no hope. I plead no contest. Only Jesus Christ. That's my only hope in this situation. And so God pardons us. That is mercy. If you walked into a doctor, you're a patient. And it's like, you should treat me. There are two slightly different situations. That's a good example. Let me give you one more. Suppose a rich person uh, decides to choose 20 inner city kids and guarantee their full college tuition. 
There are literally thousands of equally worthy kids in the inner city, and this rich woman could help maybe more than 20, but would anyone really say that since she has helped some of them, she's being unfair to everybody else? No, she has no particular obligation to help any of the children. Since all she has given is sheer mercy, you really can't say you're, you're being a bad person. It's like, well, you didn't have to do anything, but you did do this, and so you're merciful. That's going to be the reformed or Calvinist idea. And I'm going to talk to you about the other option here in just a minute. But you get this idea of God's sovereignty and his sovereignly, or as, as the one in charge, if you will, choosing and acting to save us because it takes his action to save us. I want to camp out on this verse for just a little bit. This is Alpha Romans, but this is Paul writing to the Ephesians, same thing. Beautiful passage, got some really interesting twists to it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. I love this passage. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. First of all, why did he choose us? So we would be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, because he loved us, he predestined us for what? Adoption into the family through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves through Christ. That is exactly a description of Romans chapter 1 through 8, the gospel. In other words, you don't see in Romans 1 through 8, you acted so good, you got your act together. By the way, that's why this is good news. I know I can't get my act together enough to ever be worthy of God. That's why it's good news. It said, God took care of what you couldn't do. And this is saying, and he knew me before the foundation of the world. He knew you before the foundation of the world. And he set this all in motion before you were even born. That is awesome news. People have wrestled with this idea of how does the sovereignty of God, but how does that leave room for free will for me to choose? Because obviously people do choose to follow Christ or not follow Christ. So here's our uh, perspective, and I haven't forgotten our question. I'll tell you, uh, I'm going to frame it up the way most people do. The reason I want to talk about this is this is what most people ask questions about. This is not the whole argument because all of these guys are great Christ followers. What they are really arguing about, I mean, we argued, they didn't argue as much as we did, but basically is they're trying to wrestle with this idea of, yes, God is completely sovereign, He's completely in charge of my salvation and the way all of human history is going to work. He's completely in charge of that. And yet, I experience will, the ability to, to do right or to do wrong. How do those two play? Well, John Calvin, Catholic Church at this time, this is we're going to be in the 1500s in the Reformation, right? The Protestant Reformation. Catholic Church up to this point had basically said, and all of you who are ex-Catholics, I'm just going to paint with a really broad brush, you need to act good to be worthy of God, and if you don't, I, I, the priest, can forgive you, and you need to do some penance to make up for it, okay? These guys read the Bible, read the New Testament, and go, wait a minute, that's not in here. And so John Calvin says, along with Luther, etc. but the way Calvin understood this is he said, he, he bent it over on the election side and said, God is choosing, and he chooses who will go to heaven. He chooses who will be saved. He does not, 
choose who will go to hell. And I understand that sounds a subtle thing, but you want to be fair to the Calvinists. By the way, this church is a Wesleyan tradition. I'm not necessarily trying to take a point of view. I actually want to make a point that's beyond this. Uh, but I want you to see how Christians have in good conscience wrestled with this idea, and then I want to help us understand how to live with it. So Calvin basically said, I think God's sovereignty is kind of the overriding thing here and that he really is electing and having mercy on some people. He's not sending somebody else, uh, choosing them to go to hell. Every one of us stands under condemnation. That's what everybody agrees with that. It doesn't matter if you're Calvin or Arminius or Wesley. Everybody agrees with that. Everybody reads Romans and says, yep, we all had a terminal sin problem. If it weren't for God, nobody had any hope. So to answer that question, Calvin, to be accurate, doesn't say, I picked you to go to heaven and I picked you to go to hell. He simply says, all of you guys stand under condemnation, but I'm going to save you and I'm going to save you. I understand that's a little subtle, but basically that's, that's accurate Calvinist position. God chooses who will be saved. It's called election. Arminius lived about the same time, and Jacob Arminius said, you know what, I don't think so. I think there actually is some will involved on the human side to respond to God's offer. In other words, God's still the one that saves you. You can't do it on your own, but God requires that you respond by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's called an Arminian position. Most people don't know anything about Arminians, but they do know about Wesleyans. And so John Wesley comes along in the next century, and he is an Arminian, and he basically says, you know, I think love is God's overriding trait, not sovereignty. He doesn't mean God's not sovereign. And Calvin didn't mean God doesn't love you. He just says love is probably the bigger trait, and so God wants everybody to be saved, and yet he's the only one that can do it. What Wesley's uniquely known for is he said, we would have no hope on our own of ever responding to God, but he gives everybody just enough grace. It's called prevenient grace. Gives you just enough help that you can now make a decision. You can now make a choice. That seems subtle, but those are the two camps, basically. I mean, those are the two down the middle of the road camps. There's all kinds of stuff out there, but basically is God is choosing who goes to heaven and has nothing to do with us. That's what chapter nine seems to say although there are other passages in the Bible, Wesley and Arminius say, you know what? Yes, God is sovereign. He's the only one that can save you. But it seems as though he allows us to have a, the ability to respond yes or no to him. That's essentially the difference in those camps. Does that make sense? Is how much the free will interacts with the sovereignty. So here's how it's come down. And the re I say the reason I'm talking about this is when you get to sovereignty, this is where most people go. Are we predestined? Predestined is a Calvinist idea, meaning God, pre means before, destined means chosen. He chose you before to be saved. Are we predestined or does our will come into play and it depends on whether or not I trust in Jesus Christ? That makes sense? So Calvin uh, didn't make this up. But this TULIP acronym is what was used later to kind of describe the differences. So let me explain the differences here. Total depravity. Calvin believes in that, Arminius believes in that, and Wesley believes in that. Total depravity means this. It's Romans chapters 1 through 3. 
Not that we all do bad stuff. Depravity doesn't mean you can't do something good. It's like your neighbor's not a Christian. They might do great things. Depravity means you can never become right with God on your own. We can never act good enough. We need help. Everybody agrees with that. Total depravity. Unconditional election. What unconditional election is saying is, remember when it said, uh, God through his election? And he's talking about the choosing. So Calvin would say, God chose us without regard to anything that we did. Arminius and Wesley, however, would say, God chose us because that is what the scripture says. It's not like Wesleyans don't believe in election. You gotta believe in election. But what they mean is God foreknew who would respond and with faith to Jesus Christ, and he chose those people. Does that make sense to you? You're starting to see it's not that big a difference here, but Calvin says, through no knowledge, God just sovereignly chose those who would be saved. Arminius and Wesley say, he foreknew, he knew before you were born what you would choose, and he elected those who would choose to follow Christ. Third is limited atonement. Well, based on that, who did Jesus die for? Who were his sins covering for? Calvin would say, Jesus, obviously, his death then covered the sins of the elect. It obviously did not wipe out the sins of those who are not chosen to be saved. Arminius and Wesley would say, no, he offered atonement. To, he could cover your sins, but he only effectively covers your sins if you trust in him. You see the difference? The only real difference here is how much free will is involved with God's sovereignty. The idea of irresistible grace is Calvin says, if God chose you, you are going to believe. His grace is irresistible. In other words, if God said, you are one of my chosen to believe in Christ, you will believe in Christ. Arminius and Wesley believe in resistible grace. In other words, God offered to everybody that you can believe in Christ, but only some will, and those are the only ones that are saved. So the grace is resistible. You can say, I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. And then finally, perseverance. Calvin says, based on the fact that God chose you and that he will deliver you to the promised land, you will persevere. If you are chosen, you are elect. You will not turn away from God. You will stay on the path. Arminius and Wesley. Now, Arminians and Wesleyans differ here a little bit. Some Arminians and some Wesleyans like that part. And it's like, yes, once you're saved, you're always saved. You had to respond, but once you do, you're good to go. But the traditional position, so there's some disagreement there. The traditional position is you can turn away from God. In other words, the fact that you responded means that you are free to no longer. I'm going to turn around and walk away. All of these ideas have some scriptural support for them. And so what I want you to see going on here is it's still a kind of an open question, and that is how does the sovereignty of God work with the free will of humanity? And Christians have been struggling and wrestling with that for a long time. That makes sense? And I say, the reason I bring that up is that's what the question most people have. And that is, does God choose who's going to be saved solely on his own, or do I have a role in it? And you know what? Romans chapter 9 makes it the clear point that God is sovereign, that you and I can't do this on our own. 
And everybody agrees with that. Arminians and Wesleyans would basically say, we need to respond to God's offer of grace by trusting in Jesus Christ. Whereas Calvin would say, if he chose you, you will trust in Jesus Christ. So what are some common issues around this? I don't consider this personally to be a dividing issue. I think it's very interesting. How much does this play? Calvinists believe that what you do matters. They don't think you're a robot. Calvinists believe that you are responsible for the choices that you make. It's just that God is sovereign and it's going to work out the way he wants. Well, that kind of makes sense. Certainly on a global scale, all of history, my statement of sovereignty is that all of history bends to God's will. This isn't just a crapshoot, like who knows what's going to happen. God knows what's going to happen because he's architecting all of history. On the flip side, Arminians and Wesleyans, they don't believe that you can just pick whenever and whatever. They agree. We couldn't do this without God even giving us the ability to respond. And so everybody in this discussion has a deep respect for the love of God and the sovereignty of God. It's just how much does our will come into play? Question? If God is sovereign, why do we need evangelism? Great question. If God is sovereign, let's take the, the uh, God is sovereign, by the way. Everybody I've talked to you about believes God is sovereign. Calvin, Arminius, Wesley. If the question is, what's the relation with free will? So let me rephrase that. If you are a Calvinist and you believe God has chosen why would anybody preach the gospel? It's like, sit back on the couch. He'll zap you if he wants you, right? Okay, that's called a hyper-Calvinist position. That's not, that's not biblical. What Calvinists believe is preaching the word is the method God has used to identify the elect. Calvinists, people who say, this is my under... When I say Calvinists, I'm talking about people that are just weird and they've got, you know, five arms and antenna coming out of their head. They're just people that understand this passage in this way. And they say, we need to go preach the word because that's what God told us to do. And that's apparently how he is going to choose these people. And so that's hyper-Calvinist to say, ah, never mind about it. That's not the case. There's also a hyper-Wesleyan point of view that's like, ah... You can be saved and unsaved five times this week if you want to. That's not what Wesleyans believe. That's kind of a hyper position. But God has told us to preach the word. And no matter what camp you're in, the word of God is what awakens in us. Jesus said, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. And so he's not, I'm not saying Jesus is a Calvinist. My point is everybody believes that God is doing a work in us and the preaching of the word is the mechanism that God does that work in us. So that's why Calvinists, Arminians, Wesleyans, everybody believes that we should be out preaching the word. Okay? Um, let me move on back to our passage for just a minute because I want to talk to you about this idea. So let's, let's start to bring this together a little bit. I love this passage, and it does talk about the sovereignty of God. And we usually focus on this, and we get involved in the squabble of, well, okay, and really all the squabble is about is how much of my will is involved and how much of God. I realize I can't do this without God. It's purely by his grace. You're saved by grace through faith, through your trust in Christ. That's the mechanism that God uses, the trust in Christ that makes a new human being who follows Christ. That is what he has chosen, the method by which we might be saved. We're saved by grace. The question is, how much will 
do I have involved in that? And how does it play out in my Christian walk? The essence of God's sovereignty, I mean, sometimes you need to go, well, if God's sovereign, I want to go talk about this. I want to talk about how fair that is. I want to talk about whether he chose me or I chose him. I'll tell you that Calvin, Wesley, Arminius all say, you did not choose him. He chose you. The question is, how much of my will is involved in responding to God's grace? I don't just one day go, well, I got five gods. I pick you, you lucky guy, you. I'm going to go to heaven. That's not the way it works. Only through God's grace can we be saved. But the idea of sovereignty, essentially, here's one thing to take away. We means that we accept God on his terms, not on our terms. We accept God on his terms, not on our terms. And that's the essence of sovereignty. In other words, what the word of God, the inspired word of God, what Jesus Christ tells us to do, that is what we do. We don't say, God, I'm going to be saved, but here's the deal. I'm going to act however I want on Tuesday afternoons and every other Thursday. You know, and I'm going to have a God who will do this, and I'm not going to have a God that will do that. In other words, that's not the sovereignty of God. We approach God on his terms, not on our terms. That's why you see the New Testament talking about the obedience of faith, of following Christ. The New Testament doesn't talk about Christ following me. God is not my co-pilot. God is the pilot. I'm lucky to be on the plane. In other words, sovereignty means we accept God on his terms. Also, the idea of sovereignty. I want to talk to you about sovereignty and love and how those two things fit together. If God loves me, but he's not sovereign, he's not worth following. He's just basically somebody that's, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I love you so much, and I can't do a thing about it. Not following that God. There's no justice with that God. If, however, God is sovereign, but he doesn't love me, he's just mean. If he's just in charge and he doesn't care about me, I look around at the world and I go, you're just mean. But the reality is God is not only sovereign, he also loves me. That's the essence of the gospel. I deserved death. And God so loved us that even when we were sinners, this is Romans chapter 5, Christ died for us, the ungodly. He's not only sovereign, he also loves us. So when you think of God's sovereignty, I don't want you to think about dead guys arguing over theology. And I want you to think about, well, what does that mean? Who chooses what and how they choose it? Here's what I would suggest you think about when we talk about God's sovereignty, the comfort of God's sovereignty. I know that it sounds kind of tough, and we'll probably talk about this another time, that if God's really in charge, why do bad things happen in the world? That's the same thing the Israelites said. We're walking across this desert. If God's in charge, why is it so hot in Egypt? And the point is, God said, I can look back at the Exodus now and go, oh, I know exactly what God was doing. He was forming your faith. You just didn't realize it. I just don't get out of this life to look and go, oh, Terry, God's working here. This isn't random. He's doing things that, oh, Romans 8, 28, he's going to work in all things that are good that will get you to the promised land. So the idea of God's sovereignty is a good thing. The fact that he is in charge. If nobody's in charge, I want out of this game. You know, if this is random, this is scary. But if God is in charge, I know we're going somewhere. And I know that he loves me. So when you think about the sovereignty of God and God's choosing, I want you to think about this, and I want you to, as a Christ follower, 
I want you to say, if you trust Jesus Christ, this is for you. God chose you in Christ before the creation of the world to make you holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you to be adopted into his family through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will just because he loved you to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. A sovereign God is the only God worth worshiping and a loving God is the only one who cares enough to save us. And our God is sovereign and he loves us. You should put a big old smile on your face about that. The fact that God is sovereign, instead of arguing about who, who's gonna get saved and how they're gonna get saved, we should really be thinking about, thank God. And by the way, thank you for not being fair. You know, when I was in business, we used to talk about, uh, my career mainly was in the business world, and we used to compete for a lot of big contracts, right? And so I never wanted the bidding process to be fair. I just wanted it to be unfair in my favor. All right, that's the story of business. I'm not talking about breaking laws, don't, yeah, I'm just saying, you just really want the specs written that are kind of more favorable to me than my competitor. Nobody has a problem with that. Then you should really be happy about following Christ because you got the most unfair deal in the world. And that's good news, is that I got something I never deserved, complete mercy of God. So when you think about the sovereignty of God, you think about this is a God who is worth following. He is worthy of following because he is in charge. He is working in all things for my good. Romans 8.28 is a great passage about the sovereignty of God, and it's one that we ought to hold on to. Does that make sense? So this week... I want you to go through every day. I really would like you to think about that. I want you to get up and you go, God is sovereign and God loves me. Nothing will happen to me today that is outside his ability or outside of his care for me. That will make a huge difference in how you go about your life. If you are Jewish, come back next week because he's got some special plans for you. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>